According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're looking at the word of God as a sword. Not chapter 2, chapter 4. You knew that. You knew that. Hebrews 4. Verses 12 and 13. In a lot of ways, I think about um, this as the end of the chapter, and then I have to remind myself, well, technically there's 14, 15, and 16 uh, that belong to this chapter, even if I think maybe those verses belong better with chapter 5. But since I'm not in charge of versification or chapterfication, this was all done in the Middle Ages before I was even born. Um, but we do have uh, a transition from Jesus the King, uh, God's King Son, to God's Priest Son, and that, that priesthood is going to be amplified as soon as we uh, finish these verses and we get to verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And so the priesthood ministry uh, we're going to see in 14, 15, and 16, and it just carries on into chapter 5 and really through the rest of the book. It really becomes a, a main point of emphasis uh, for uh, several chapters uh, hereafter. And so stay tuned for that. It is the book of our priesthood. It is the book of how we function in Christ, entering within the rest that is within the veil. And that's uh, why we spent the time we have to uh, understand what rest is all about in these early chapters. All right? So verse uh, 12, uh, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And uh, today we're going to focus on that ability, on how it is able, and uh, how it then gets amplified in verse 13. Not only is it able to judge, you're not able to hide, okay? There is no creature hidden from his sight. Where do you think you can hide from God? All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we give a word, that is, we have to do. And we'll uh, develop that for you this morning as well. All right. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's open with a word of prayer, asking him to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word, for the blessing that we have to assemble together, to study, to show ourselves approved before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Father, we are workmen and we are standing before you. Father, you are our judge. Your word is the standard. And I pray today as we study the living and abiding word of God that you would open our eyes to these truths that we would be humbled before the standard of your word. Uh, your word judges us, and we are in no position to pass judgment on your word. And Father, we are not fellow authors. We are not editors. We don't pick and choose which verses we agree with. We don't pick and choose which verses we're going to live. We are humble under your word, and we thank you for it, Father. So open our eyes to this truth. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, and so in this process, let me get ahead to our slide from last week, looking at verse 12. Remember, the impact on this is that it's the living word. The, it, if reading it in English where it says, for the word of God is, it sounds like uh, we, we have a topic here, and the topic is the word of God, and the uh, description of the word of God is found in three uh, rapid uh, adjectives. The word of God is living and active and sharper, right? Alive and powerful and sharper, however, however your Bible translation renders that. But it seems as if most of the English translations start with that, putting the Word of God up front and then having three adjectives that follow. However, that's not the Greek order. Living comes first. So it's living. Living is the Word. Living. Alive. The Word of God is living. It is alive. And on that basis, on the basis that it is alive, it is therefore active and sharper. And we want to uh, never lose sight of that. So living is the word, active and sharper. We uh, went through the puzzle. Is this word of God? Is this Logos Tutheu? Is this the Bible? Or is this Jesus Christ himself? Because Jesus is also called Halogos in John 1.1 1, 1, and in a lot of places. You see them here. John 1.14, when the word became flesh. And 1 Peter 1.23, 1 John 1, 1 and 2, where he's called the word of life. Uh, Revelation 19.13, where his name is called the Word of God. And so it's legitimate to ask yourself, if you have a Word of God passage, a Logos Tutheu passage, when we read Ha Logos Tutheu, are we talking about Jesus personally? Are we talking about the Word of God, the spoken and written Word of God as it's communicated? Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. And so it is a legitimate question. I do believe, though, that the primary way that the author of Hebrews had intended was with respect to the written uh, canon of Scripture, with respect to the spoken word as the Word of God is ministered by communicators to hearers that the primary application is to the written word. But it's not wrong to think of this in, the, in, in terms of Jesus Christ himself. Is Jesus living? Yes, Jesus is living. Is Jesus active? Yes, he's active. Is he powerful? Yes, he's powerful. And, uh, and so the descriptions here with respect to the living, to the written word of God, clearly are also applicable to the living word of God. And Isaiah 55 is another text as well that can be taken either way or both ways, depending on how you want to read it. Uh, I think Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, and James, though, speak of the written word, exclusively of the written word. All right. So depending on what you want to do with this, depending on where you think hermeneutically it falls down, you have to take an interpretive decision. What do I think the author had in mind? Remember, all hermeneutics is what did the author intend when he said it, not what do I think he wanted to say or what do I think, what do I get out of it? What does it mean to me? That, that, too much of the Bible is becoming subjective these days on the part of uh, people with an unfair hermeneutic. The Bible means what it meant when it was written. And that's, uh, that's a, a very, very important point. All right, let that go for this morning. Effective and active, these, are, uh, these aren't co-equal with living. Don't think it is co-equal. Don't think that it's the Word of God is living and active and powerful. No, they're not co-equal with living. Because it's living, active and powerful become, uh, sub, uh, become uh, subservient to that. In other words, they amplify the prime adjective of living. 
and uh, becomes additional information with respect to living, which is something else about the Word of God, different from any other living thing that you see, from humans to animals to plants to point, you know, point at something living today, and I guarantee the older it gets, the less active and less sharp it's going to become. Okay, and that's true. That's true of your dogs, your cats, your pets, your parents. That's true of yourself. All right, that's true of anything living. Uh, the older it gets, it's less active and it's less sharp. Okay, and yet the Word of God, the older it gets, well, guess what? It's not getting any older, is it? Because it's eternal. And uh, somebody asked me the other day, in our resurrection bodies, will resurrection bodies age? What age will we be in our resurrection bodies? I said, well, it's not a part of mortality, it's a part of immortality. And it doesn't age, see. So you have that to look forward to. (laughs) We all do. All right. The two-edged sword or the surgeon's scalpel was our subject a week ago where we talked about the Machiron terminology and how typically it's translated sword, but really it was a knife in a priestly uh, uh, context, the knife that was used for sacrificing, like when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, he took hold of the knife, which in the Septuagint Greek was the Machiris, the same as we have here. And so it can be used for a sword, but it can be used of a knife, it can be used of a surgeon's scalpel as well. And I think we've got a lot of medical terminology in the book of Hebrews, like we have a lot of medical terminology in Luke and medical terminology in Acts, and it tends to support the Lucan authorship of Hebrews, that hypothesis. But if this book has medical terminology in other places, then maybe this is medical terminology as well, and I think it is. Because the purpose for this blade coming in, whatever blade we want to call it, this blade is not killing the patient. This blade is exposing what needs to be exposed. And there's a purpose for exposing these things, not just killing the target. You can kill a target without exposing anything inside there. And so piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Well, why bother if you're just going to kill the thing? right? There is no creature hidden from his sight. Well, why bother inspecting the, uh, the organs and the things that are open and laid bare if there's not a purpose for inspecting those items? But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, the one to whom we will give an account. We will give a word. And each one of us is going to give a word to God. And uh, and so it's important if we're going to give a word to God that we give a word to God with all of these things being exposed, all of these things being laid bare, every aspect of of things being on display. So I like the surgeon's scalpel as a as a uh, translation, or the sacrificial priestly knife is another perfectly fine way because it is priestly language that uh, that follows this here in fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen. All right, so here's the point then. We didn't quite get this far last week. This is the final detail from verse 12. There is no depth to which the word cannot penetrate. There is no depth to which the word cannot penetrate. And uh, as it says in verse 12, able, piercing as far as and able. So when it says as far as, is there something beyond that? Is it, can you get any deeper than the dividing asunder of soul and spirit? That's like the that's is, that's the pinnacle. That is the that is the maximum depth. There is no there's nothing deeper than that. See. Likewise of both joints and marrow. We're talking about a maximal extreme 
such as the language here communicates. So there is nothing beyond. It's, it's similar to how the Old Testament reveals, is God's arm so short it cannot save? Is His arm so short he can't, he can't quite reach you? Oh, is that close, right? Missed it by that much. God is not so short. His arm is not so short that He cannot reach. And His knife is not so short that it cannot pierce. It pierces as deep as it needs to. And so there is no depth to which the Word cannot penetrate. It exposes everything it needs to. And so these are good verses for you. You should be familiar with all of them, I would suspect. There may, there may not be anything new this morning, but just get them down and memorize them. Have them in your thinking. First Samuel 16 and verse 7. We understand this one, First Samuel 16 and verse 7. When it comes to what God sees and what God judges and what God holds us accountable for, it's not the externals. It doesn't say that the Word of God is, uh, is, uh, is uh, you know, looking at the externals. It's piercing deep. It's piercing deep. And this is when Samuel is sent to, uh, to anoint the new king of Israel, the replacement for King Saul. And the problem is, is when, when Jesse calls his firstborn in, the problem is, is Eliab was just so tall, dark, and handsome. I mean, right? Eliab was just everything. And you looked at him and he said, wow, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. You know, you see a political candidate and you go, ooh, this is a guy that looks good on TV and sounds good on the teleprompter and he's going to have an impact in the campaign just because of how he looks and how he talks. And that's all externals. Okay, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. And so this, uh, this becomes the real issue because your character is you. It's your soul. It's your integrity. It's not your physical appearance. It's not the external show that you can put on, you know. The guy comes to pick up your daughter for the dance and what kind of impression does he make? Well, all you see is the externals. You know, I want to know the person. I want to know his soul. You know, that's, that's, that's the real issue. I want my daughter to know the real guy, not just the externals. The issue's there. Anyway, I can preach on this for an hour. Let's, uh, let's not, okay? The point is, though, God can see all these things. Why does he have to cut it open and look? I mean, if you can see it already, what's the point in cutting it open? All right, 1 Kings 8 and 39. 1 Kings 8 and 39. In 1 Kings chapter 8, this is a generation later, um, or a little bit more over a generation, because now David has become king. He's done his whole reign as king. He's died. Now Solomon is king, and he's building the temple. He completes the temple. And he's dedicating it here in this, in this chapter. It's a very lengthy prayer. But if we get down to verse 39. Let's see, verse 37. If there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is. So just stop right there. We have economic difficulties. We have agricultural difficulties we have political difficulties we have military difficulties whatever the problem is is our solution going to be economic is it going to be political is our solution going to be military can we buy our way out of all our problems can we bomb our way to to peace what can we do if our nation has problems what's the solution 
spiritual. It's a spiritual solution. Now we're not at the theocracy Israel was, but patterned after their example, we should have the same priorities they were commanded to have. So if all this stuff's happening, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel. Now notice that. You can have individual prayers, but what's better? Corporate prayer, congregational prayer. Come together with your church family. Come together with your pastor and your deacons. Let's pray together over these things. Whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. You alone, you alone. No fallen angel, not Satan. They can't read your mind. They don't know your heart. They can watch your body language. They can spy on you 24-7. But only God knows the heart. Only God. He Only He can as part of His uniqueness as the self-existent I Am. So if He knows all these things, why do we pray about Him? And if He knows all these things, why does He cut it open to show us? All things are open and laid bare. And so we get to look down. Oh, okay. And this is where God's surgery is better than any human surgery because we're awake for this process. <laughs> and he opens us up and he says, look at that sick thing. And you look at it and go, hmm, yeah, that's a sick thing. Can you get that out of there, please? Okay, let's get that out of there. Let's put a new one in there. And we get to agree. When he cuts it open, we can stop lying to ourselves. We can stop acting as if we don't know how sick and wicked and twisted those organs are. That's a beautiful thing. Psalm 139. And this one shows up on two slides today because I had hoped we would do one last week and one this week. So uh, it was designed to be uh, back-to-back redundancy and uh, and benefit. Instead, I uh, went too slow two weeks ago and didn't get to it and then you're going to get it twice today. That's all right. Psalm 139, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Isn't that a beautiful verse? Because in spite of searching me and in spite of knowing me, you saved me anyway. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Lord. Okay? And for anyone who thinks that you know, you can lose your salvation like in the Arminian theology, and I mentioned that pastor earlier. Um, the idea that you can lose your salvation kind of has the sense that he didn't know about that ahead of time. He didn't know the chump, the loser, the, the rebel that you are. He, he knew that, and he saved you anyway. He knows about your sins before you get saved, your sins after you get saved, every sin you're going to do till the day you die. And he saved you anyway, because all those sins were paid for by Jesus Christ. You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. This is what allows us to have such brutal honesty in our prayer life because why why fake it? God knows it all anyway. He knows He's more intimately acquainted with all our ways. And so that's... uh, that's a beautiful thing. We'll come back to this on the next slide, actually, because the whole psalm speaks about this, about how can I hide? Where can I rot? Where can I go to heaven? Can I go to hell? Where can I, the farthest extent of the earth? Where can I flee from God's presence? Nowhere. 
Jeremiah 17.10, the heart is deceitful above all else. Do we know this one? The very first time, I was a little boy and we went to our very first ever vacation Bible school. Didn't know what a vacation Bible school was. Thought, hey, this sounds fun. You know, because it was summer, we didn't have real school, although I did volunteer for summer school. Um, but this, this, this sounds fun. Let's go to a vacation Bible school, daily vacation Bible school. And the verse was Jeremiah 17.10. And we memorized it for the week. Every class during the week was about total depravity and God judging us and why we needed to get saved. And it came from this. Verse 9 says, uh, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? The heart is desperately sick. When Walt Disney tells the Disney princess to follow her heart, what are they saying? (laughs) All right? No, don't follow your heart. Get a new heart. Believe in Jesus Christ and walk in that newness of life. How about that? And I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Notice it's not an emotional thing. It's a thinking thing. The heart is the cardia. It's the core of your being. And it centers in whether your thinking is adjusted to God's standard or not. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The results of his deeds. And so there it is. We covered that in our Jeremiah series. How about 1 Corinthians 4, 5? New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. This is what allows us to be relaxed and not legalists and judgmental towards one another. Let a man regard us in this manner. Chapter uh, 4, verse 1 begins this way. As servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And who's going to judge that? Who's going to determine if I'm a faithful pastor or not, or if you're a faithful believer, if you're pursuing your gift or not? To me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Okay? You have your opinion? Great. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. So we just walk in grace. We keep our eyes on the Lord. We leave the results in His hand. We uh, trust. We're walking in grace. We're keeping short accounts. We're staying in fellowship. And yeah, we sin, but we confess. And uh, we don't uh, kill ourselves with endless, you know, introspection or navel gazing or any of the other we're just we're just you know keeping our eyes on the lord and uh you know the crummiest pastor in the history of the church age or the greatest pastor in the history of the church age or on a spectrum somewhere in the middle there whatever the case is that word will be given at the judgment seat of christ and before he gives his word i got to give my word that's the accountability we're going to see here in hebrews that he is the one with whom we must give a word each one of us gives an account of ourselves to God. So, do we judge ourselves? Do we judge one another? It does go on to say, therefore, uh, because the one who examines me is the Lord, therefore, stop. It says, do not go on passing judgment before the time. If you're already now kind of a judgmental person, quit it. Cut it out. Stop doing that. 
passing judgment before the time. We're not at the Bema seat yet. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. And when your gold, silver, and precious stones is exposed, your praise will come. And when your wood, hay, and stubble is all burned up, your praise will come to the glory of Jesus Christ. And we're going to say, thank you, Father. And we will uh, confess. This can be a beautiful exposure on these things. Remember, this is the criteria for what takes a, a work, a deed, a Christian act of service. What, what determines whether it's gold, silver, and precious stones or whether it's wood, hay, and straw? You know, is it just, because it, it can be the same thing. It can be exactly the same thing. It can be two people sitting in the same, you know, side by side in the same pew. And one of them is under teaching and humble and in fellowship and learning and growing and honoring Jesus Christ because the motivation is what determines the criteria. The other person sitting there gritting their teeth, grumbling, hating every minute of it, regretting that they didn't stay home and mow the lawn or they had a, you know, a long list of things they wanted to get done today. Or they only came for the potluck because, you know, somebody told them it was a potluck and that's a good Sunday to visit. By the way, it's a great Sunday to visit. But if the only reason you're here is for the potluck, there's a motivation question there and, and that's the criteria for whether it's gold, silver, precious stones or whether it's wood, hay, and, and, and stubble. And God's the one that does that. Now this is, this is slightly different than our Hebrews text though because this is talking about a future judgment, a future exposure. See? But when we come back to Hebrews 4, are we taking that passage in a future kind of way or are we taking that passage in a present kind of way? The Word of God presently is able to judge the thoughts and the intent of the heart. The Word of God presently pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Not just someday at the Bema, it's now. It's a present application in Hebrews 4, whereas here is a future application in 1 Corinthians 4. Finally, uh, Revelation 2 and verse 23 Revelation 2 and verse 23. We have these messages to the seven churches. And um, it's curious. This is uh, Thyatira. Okay, so it's church number four out of the seven. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write. Remember, these are strictly speaking, these are letters to the seven pastors of the seven churches. Strictly speaking, most of the rebukes are to the ungloi, to the heavenly messengers, the pastors of these churches. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service. These are singular. This you is not a y'all, it's a you. It's a singular, okay? And I love the fact, when I moved down here from, I grew up in Seattle, Washington. We didn't have y'all in Seattle, Washington. On the West Coast, there was no y'all. And, and it was not until I got, well, I learned it first of all in Alabama, boot camp at Fort McClellan, Alabama. And there was a y'all and fixin' to and a bunch of other Southern expressions. But this is not a y'all. This is you, singular, individual, the angelos, the messenger, the pastor at Thyatira Bible Church. I know your deeds, your love, your faith and service and perseverance, that you, your deeds are of late greater than at first. 
That's unusual. Most uh, pastors get tired and kind of slow down, but he's, this guy's accelerating. Good for you. But I have this against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel. So here's, this is a marvelous class, by the way, for tolerance. <laughs> the world that preaches tolerance in different contexts. Um, but here's a, here's a bad tolerance. Here is something he's tolerating that ought not be tolerated. God says he's not tolerating it. Why are you tolerating it? And this woman Jezebel calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bond servants astray. You know, you start showing favoritism who, who should not be thrown out of the church because of whatever reason. What are you doing? She's evil. Why is she still here? All right. And besides that, besides, I mean, eviction is the, is the final step of church discipline. There's, there's steps that lead up to that, including personal rebukes and two and three in the whole congregation. She should be given multiple repentance opportunities. And this pastor hasn't said a word to her. All right. So she calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray. So they fornicate with her. You know, if a Bible teacher is telling you, you got to sleep with me tonight, that's a problem. All right. And they eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her fornication. Fornication's plural. Behold, I will throw her in a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am, and here's the description, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. Now, is that future? Is that judgment state of Christ? No, that's present. That's right here, right now. And this woman's been doing this for, for far too long. She should have been removed a long time ago. And I will give each one of you according to your deeds. So those, uh, those men that she fornicated with, they're going to get theirs too. They're going to get theirs too. This is not an example like uh, that... that John chapter 8 story where they dragged the woman before the Lord and well, where was the guy? You know, they dragged her before the Lord and said, look, we caught this woman in the very act. The very act by herself? Where's the, where's the guy? Caught her in adultery? Well, here, no, her, uh, her partners in crime are likewise, her fellow fornicators are likewise condemned. But I say to you, the rest who are in, now here's, y'all plural, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching. So now it switches from the singular to the plural. And, and it does so in several of these seven churches. And, and you've got to be careful in how you read these. Who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. That's not Jesus calling them that. They were calling it that. How brazen do you have to be in your demonism when you're giving it that label? The deep things of Satan. And, and the men were going for it. Well, yeah, because it also had some sex with it too. They had to, you know, uh, the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. What you have, hold fast. And we talked to you about keeping your armor on. We talked to you about keeping your eyes on the Lord. We tell you to hold fast. 
Scripture tells us again and again and again to hold fast. That armor of God passage that West taught, hold fast, stand firm. Let no one take your crown. Those are, those are serious warnings. So, um, they're described there. And uh, again, the men aren't getting off scot-free. Those in verse 22, those who committed adultery with her, they also come under Jesus Christ's judgment in this verse. Not anti-woman, not picking on the Jezebel. All right. So there is no depth. There is nothing hidden. Everything is open and laid bare. The eyes of the one with whom we have to do. Now, we get to verse 13. We're going to repeat um, much of what we just studied out of verse 12. Okay? So prepare yourself for some redundancy. I had thought we were going to do those verses last week and these verses this week. And you're going to notice that Psalm 139 comes back again. Some other verses come back again. That's all right. I'm not embarrassed. We can look at those verses again. No creature is unmanifest before him, but every creature is naked and prepped for the knife. No creature is unmanifest before him. If I wanted to give this verse my own translation, it's, it's interesting because the idea of manifest, right? No creature hidden from his sight. All things are open. That is, all things are manifest. All things are, you know, you've got a, a, a fonorao idea. You've got the light is shining and then boom, you know, what to my wondering eyes should appear? That's the idea of manifest. And for you and me, there's things that we don't see for the longest time and then, oh, why didn't I see that before? Okay. It was right there in plain sight. Why didn't I see that? Well, God never has those moments. God never has a moment where he looks at something and goes, wow, why didn't I see that before? Because he's always seeing it. He's always seeing everything. And so we're all open. We're all laid bare. We're all manifest. We're all naked. Another word for bare is naked. And, uh, and prepped for the knife. So if you think about it, it's almost like if you're a hunter and you've got a, a, an animal there and uh, is it prepped for the knife? Are you, what do you got to do once you, uh, once you slay that animal? What does a priest have to do when he when he slaughters the animal, and then what does he have to do to drain the blood? What does he have to do to then prep the animal for sacrifice? All right. Anyway, that's kind of the language that we're dealing with here. And we're all before God in this way. We're all naked and prepped for the knife. And so we've seen already uh, Psalm 139. Let's get back to that again. We didn't read all these verses. I know we read verses 1 and 2. And um, we read 1, 2, and 3, intimately acquainted with all my ways, scrutinizing my path and my lying down. That means when I'm out in public and when I'm home in private, He sees us everywhere. And even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid Your hand upon me. That's actually a good thing. Boundaries are for our blessing. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. And then uh, from omniscience, we then switch to omnipresence in seven and following with where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And wherever you want to run, you can't run far enough. God's there. And then uh, further down in verse 23, 
Let's see. Some of these too are useful um, about fellowshipping in the thoughts of God, such as verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast is the sum of them. See, this is the flip side. God knows our hearts, but he also invites us to know his heart. He also shares with us his thinking. It's higher than ours as the heaven is higher than the earth, but he shares shares it with us. And we get to know his thoughts. And the more of his thoughts we know, the more precious they become to us. How vast is the sum of them? So I can't even count them all. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. This is a believer that goes to sleep with doctrine on his mind. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. He wants to separate from these bad influences. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? See, not all hate is a hate crime. If God hates it, why don't we hate it? Our mind is to be the mind of Christ. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now understand, this is a sacred hatred because look what follows. Search me, O God, and know my heart. (laughs) Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me. And you'll notice that doesn't include any of that hate from verses uh, 21 and 22. Not accidental, these are back to back this way. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So when that sword of the Spirit, when that Word of God sword is piercing and cutting and it's exposing things and it's showing things, thank Him for it. Get on board. Make those corrections. Have the thinking He has. Accept His thoughts and proceed from there. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. This was a stressed point of emphasis in uh, the Jeremiah series. Remember when we did 52 chapters in 52 weeks? You remember this week? Yeah, I know, you've slept since then. Um, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? What kind of God do you have? (laughs) What kind of God do we all have? We've got a God that's right here, right? It's near. He's with us. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I'm right here, right now. You cannot hide from God. Jeremiah 32, 17 through 19. Ah, Lord God, behold... You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 19, great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. See, this is not the deism approach of God, the clockmaker who created the universe and then disappeared, stepped off and hands off and just lets it run its course. No, he is actively involved in everything that happens. Great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways to, and according to the fruit of his deeds. 
See, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. We will reap what we have sown. God sees what's going on. So no creature is unmanifest before him. The scoffer says he is. The scoffer lies to himself. He tells himself a couple things. He says there is no God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. But then secondly, he says he doesn't see. He doesn't know. Well, what, what is it? Is there no God or does he not see? Does he not know? And both passages are in Scripture. I find it interesting. Now the song of 12 and 13 opens and ends with halagos. It opens and ends with halagos. And I was going to show you this. I was going to show you this. And I still can. How about that? Um, because I left this open. Hebrews 4.12 making it large enough for the uh, back row commandos there. All right, 12 and 13 is what we're looking for. And uh, here we have it, all right? So here is the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. This is our zone living Halagos to theu. There's the word of God. All right. So here's our logos. Color that green. How about that? All right. And then at the end, verse thirteen. Kaiuk estin katisis afanes. There is no unmanifest creation. There is no unmanifest creation. Kaiuk estin katisis afanes. There is no unmanifest from phanerao or phanes. Manifest creation before him. All things are gumna. Gumna, G-Y-M-N. Like gymnasium, right? Gumna. And uh, nowadays, if you go to the gym naked, they'll throw you out. But back then, (laughs) in the Greek world, that's how they competed. That's what the Olympics were like. That was, <laughs> yeah. Here's another libation. We're going to pour out a... No, they would compete naked. And so the word gumnos means naked. All things are naked before God. He sees it. You're not going to cover it up. You're not going to hide it. He sees it. And... Uh, Tetra Kelismena, laid bare. That is Tetra Kelismena. That's prepared for the knife, stretched out. The neck is exposed. If you think about vulnerability, you think about, I mean, even in the animal world, when they, when they show the neck, okay, or an animal that you're going to, uh, you got to slit, slit the throat in order to drain the blood. It's a, uh, the, the neck is a vulnerable place. You don't, if you're in combat, you don't want your opponent to get anywhere near your neck. Okay? It's a vulnerable place. It's also an intimate place. That's why we call it necking. All right? If, uh, if a husband and wife are... Anyway, the neck is where that comes from. But think about it. All things are open and laid bare. All things are naked and the neck is exposed. And uh, to the ophthalmos, the eyes of him. He has eyes and he can see. 
pros han, towards whom we, to us, halagos. And that's why it's kind of idiomatic. And that's why uh, many of our English Bibles have very awkward translations. And, and this one, I, I'm actually not hostile to it. The eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay, I get that. We have to do. But what does it mean we have to do? We have to do with God. What does that mean? We must give a word. We must give a word. All eyes are open, or uh, all creatures, all things, are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom we must give a word. Must give a word. And that's how I'm translating it, rendering it. That's my idiomatic expression for pros han who mean halagos. Literally, it's towards whom to us the word. How do we understand? Towards whom to us the word. He mean is to us the word. Okay? So it opens with halagos. It closes with halagos. It's, a, it's hymnic. It's poetic. Uh, probably it was originally sung. We don't know the music to this, but uh, Doug or someone that's musical can, uh, George Ann can create a, a tune for this. So the song of verses 12 through 13 opens and ends with halagos. We have to do with Jesus because we must give a word to the word. You and I will stand before him and we will give a word to the word. Matthew 12, 36, Matthew 16, 27, Romans 14, 12, 1 Peter 4, 5. We must give a word to the word. Are you familiar with these? Maybe so, maybe not. Matthew 12. Do we know how accountable we are? Matthew 12. Do we know how accountable we are? In some ways, I think church-age believers, grace leaves them with a false impression that we are less accountable than the Old Testament. And that's backwards. We're actually more accountable than the Old Testament. Because we're under grace and not under law that does not diminish our accountability, it magnifies our accountability again and again and again. And Hebrews will make that clear. We are more accountable. And so in Matthew 12, and he calls them here a brood of vipers. And uh, this is part of the, the conflict he's having here with the Pharisees. And they were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. And so this is, this is a hinge moment. From this moment on, He's been rejected. The, the religious leaders have rejected the Christ. And at this hinge moment, he stops telling his disciples that the kingdom is at hand. He starts preparing his disciples for the cross. And this chapter really is a hinge chapter in the life of Christ. And uh, so we've got the unpardonable sin in verses 30 through 32. Then he talks about character in verses 33 through 37. That's what we're looking at here. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Now some people say this is a, t- this is a test of whether you're saved or not. 
And yet the idea of taking a good tree and making it bad is kind of a scary thought if, if this is your metaphor for whether you're saved or not. We're going to take a good tree, a saved tree, and make them an unsaved tree, make them a bad... How, how are we doing that? Okay, can't do that, can't go there. And this parable doesn't go there, which we taught in the Life of Christ series. But a tree is known by its fruit. You brood, So, you know, this thing in your backyard that keeps pumping out uh, pecans... You know what kind of tree that is? <laughs> it's not an apple tree. All right. It's not a mango tree. You know, and trees just don't, they're not volitional creatures. They don't just decide one day they wake up and they get tired of pecans and say, you know, I'm this year I'm going to, you know, they don't do that. Humans do that. Humans get tired, volitionally tired of doing what we're supposed to be doing and decide to do something different. So, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And here's the thing, as believers, we've got both. We have the old nature in Adam, we've got the new nature in Christ, and we have to choose this day whom we're going to serve. We have to be in fellowship or you know, so that we're not out of fellowship. And if we have to confess our sins... We have the mechanism to do that. We can be restored to fellowship. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. That's powerful. That's intimidating. In fact, it makes me want to just close my mouth and not say anything for the rest of my life. Okay? But I can't do that. I'm a gifted communicator. I've got to say something. But if I don't, I'm accountable. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. So it's not just deeds. Sins of the overt sins, that's hard enough. But then verbal sins are even worse. The book of James says if you can control your tongue, you're a mature man. And the author, James, said, I don't know who does that. <laughs> James hadn't met him yet. Okay? And then the thinking, taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Overt sin, sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins. Our, our studies, our martyology doctrine has to include all of them. Got to have a study on all, every facet. So we are accountable by your words. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. Here's the deeds. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to His deeds. This is when payback comes. It comes at the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, accountable. Accountable for words, accountable for deeds. Some of us want that accountability to come too soon. We have an unbeliever that's been harassing us and we just want the wrath of God to hit him. We're, we're calling down lightning and Lightning's not coming yet, okay? Because we should be praying for repentance. We should be loving our enemies. We should be praying for those who persecute you. It would be much better to have that nemesis come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then we can fellowship with him for all eternity. Isn't that a more sanctified solution than just blasting them with lightning and sending them to hell? Romans fourteen twelve. This one is probably the clearest that not only are we accountable, but we give an account. We say the word. 
We were looking at this a couple weeks ago with uh, verse 1 where it says, Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I've got opinions, you've got an opinions, that's fine. We've got, everybody's got an opinion, that's great. And we're not here to judge you. If you came to that conclusion, honestly, if you search the Scriptures and this is your conviction, hey, there you go. I'm happy for believers that are walking their faith according to the Bible. So we're not going to judge. And if you eat vegetables and I eat meat, all the better. Okay, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And so, hey, I'm walking before the Lord, you're walking before the Lord. I've got my convictions, you've got your convictions. And so uh, I don't judge you, you don't judge me. It's called grace. Sometimes though it's a struggle, and so Paul's asking him this. You get down to verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Elsewhere it's called the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, that's the bema. We're all going to stand there. We're all going to stand there. As it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall give praise to God. We've got something to say when we get there. Each one of us will give a logos. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So what are you going to say when you stand before your Savior? What can you say? <laughs> We've got to give a word. We're going to stand before our Savior. You know, in boot camp, the drill sergeant says, the, the only thing you can tell me is no excuse, right? No excuse, drill sergeant. That was drilled into you. Because whatever you were wrong for, even if you had a reason, doesn't matter. No excuse, drill sergeant. And that's kind of a neat pattern, I think. When I'm standing before the Lord, what, am I going to start making excuses? I'm going to say, oh, Lord, Lord, I tried. <laughs> that's the unbelieving crowd that said, Lord, Lord, we, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. And then Jesus says, get out of here. Depart from me, I never knew you. In my view, I, from what I can tell, no born-again person, when, when Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, he doesn't have any, he's not spouting off and all this other stuff. It's the rich man over there in torments that's spouting off and all kinds of stuff. Lazarus is just enfolded in the arms of Abraham, being comforted. So what can we say when we get there? What's the word we're going to give? Each one of us will give an account. We will give a word. All right. Don't panic about it now. It'll be given to you what you should say. 1 Peter 4, 5. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. We will give an account. They will give an account. Remember, he judges the living and the dead. For us, it's going to be a delight. For them, not so much. <laughs> See, this crowd, and you used to run with them. You know who they are. They're the crowd that still is doing the things you used to do. So, um, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of his time, of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of man, but for the will of God. Why did he save me? so I can walk according to His will. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. 
And there's a description here. You can plug your name in wherever it fits. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. Why? You used to. What's wrong with you? Oh, you're too good for this these days? And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. It doesn't say the end is all near, so attend more Bible classes. It doesn't say uh, attend more potlucks, more fellowship. It says prayer meeting. Prayer meeting. Keep fervent your love for one another because love covers the multitude of sins. All right. Well, that's it. We must give an account. We're going to come back next week and get our look at the priesthood that's here in verses 14, 15, and 16. We have a great high priest, one who has passed through the heavens. Not a guy that went through a veil and disappeared and when he comes back, he'll have to do it again next year. We got a guy that went once and for all. He passed through the heavens. Remember how the book of Hebrews opened? When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We have a great high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so that's our priesthood. We need to hold fast our confession. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you, Father, that it is alive and the living Word of God is active and sharp. We thank you for the way that it cuts. We thank you for what it exposes. We thank you for what it lays bare, not just on Judgment Day when we get there, but today, right here, right now. Father, maybe this morning we've been sitting right here and that knife is pierced deep. That's a good thing, Father. Thank you for that. Let us see what you've already seen all along. Open it to uh, make it exposed to our consideration. You knew it was there all along. But let us see it, Father, so we can become your fellow workers, so we can join you in cutting it out. We might proceed forward on a, on a cleansed basis. So, Father, we just thank you for opening up uh, our eyes to these things, showing us what this truth is all about. Humble us under your word. Show us that we're not free to rewrite your word. If there's a particular sin that we enjoy doing, we can't re-edit the Bible to make it tell us that that sin is okay these days. Father, help us to humble ourselves under the eternal, eternally living, eternally active, eternally sharp Word of God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are going to...